Hail and well met, Traveler. Welcome to Threat Dice, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the vagaries of the dice. I'm your host, Kylan Wigan. I am one-third of the team at TumbleDye Games, a young company developing a new hybrid storytelling RPG called Trove. We believe in the power of story, and the goal of Trove is to simulate the arc and tension of a three-act story within the framework of a tabletop RPG. You can find out more at www.tumbledye.com, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at TumbleDye, or Instagram. I have some great news for today, and I will keep it brief. We've gotten our first review on Podchaser. Leanne Rose rated Threat Dice 5 stars and says, Enjoyed the in-depth talks on a wide variety of tabletop RPG subjects. The host, Kylan, sometimes with guests and sometimes solo, dives into a single subject per episode, such as world building, character building, or ways to improve the experience around the table, sharing thoughtful commentary and useful techniques. I also appreciated that many of the episodes come with transcripts. Thank you very much, Leanne. I'm so glad that you enjoyed this series, and we really appreciate the review. I've got something a little different for you today. A couple members of the Pathfinder group I've now been playing with for somewhere around four or five years recently decided we would try to branch out a bit. Several of us are very long-time players and GMs, and like most everyone out there, we've spent most of our time speaking the common tongue and its variants. The group has already played Pathfinder, Starfinder, and has been dedicated beta testers of Trove, our game under development, for over a year now. Still, sometimes it's good to try something new, like we've talked about before on this very podcast. So I decided to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak, and challenged my Pathfinder GM to run Numenera. He's been talking about it for years now, but we'd just never gotten there. And now, we have. Code switching to a new game system comes easily to us, and being long-time hobbyists, we're fluent enough in the general ideas and concepts of RPGs that we could pick up almost anything and play it to understanding pretty quickly. So today's episode is a discussion about Numenera, and by extension the Cypher RPG system. It's not a review, exactly. I don't feel like I've experienced enough of it to really give it a thorough up or down, and frankly, that kind of format bothers me anyway. What I'd like to do instead is to focus on several different areas of the game system that I did experience in our three-shot, like a one-shot, but took three sessions to play. Explore them thoroughly and leave it up to you whether or not these concepts are something you would be interested in trying out for yourself. Fair warning, I do not believe by any means that we have explored everything Numenera has to offer. We played a small adventure from the Weird Discoveries book called Under the Pyramid, using pre-generated characters provided in the same book. For the first session, there were three of us. For the remaining two sessions, we had only two players. I will avoid story spoilers as much as possible choosing instead to focus on the systems themselves from a player's perspective. I did not GM these sessions, so I have only limited insight behind the screen. We're going to talk about several important parts of Numenera. First, the setting, which is absolutely critical to understanding the systems of the game. Second, the core resolution mechanic, which facilitates essentially every action taken in the game. Next, we'll look at the characters themselves, the options available in the core book, Numenera Discovery, and their moving parts. Finally, we'll talk about what might be the most interesting part of the system to me, the primary attribute pools, and the push-pull between the desire for success 
and the fear of injury and death. Let's dive in. The following is excerpted from Numenera Discovery, page 12. There have been eight previous worlds. You may refer to them as ages, eons, epics, or eras, but it's not wrong to think of each as its own individual world. Each former world stretched across vast millennia of time. Each played host to a species whose civilizations rose to supremacy, but eventually died or scattered, disappeared or transcended. During the time that each world flourished, those who ruled it spoke to the stars, re-engineered their physical bodies, and mastered form and essence, all in their own unique ways. Each left behind remnants. The ninth world is built on the bones of the previous eight, and in particular the last four. Reach into the dust and you'll find that each particle has been worked, manufactured, or grown, and then ground back into drit, a fine artificial soil, by the relentless power of time. Look to the horizon, is that a mountain or part of an impossible monument to the forgotten emperor of a lost people? Feel that subtle vibration beneath your feet, and know that ancient engines, vast machines the size of kingdoms, still operate in the bowels of the earth. The Ninth World is about discovering the wonders of the worlds that came before it, not for their own sake, but as the means to improve the present and build a future. Each of the prior eight worlds in its own way is too distant, too different, too incomprehensible. Life today is too dangerous to dwell on a past that cannot be understood. The people excavate and study the marvels of the prior epics just enough to help them survive in the world they have been given. They know that energies and knowledge are suspended invisibly in the air, that reshaped continents of iron and glass, below, upon, and above the earth, hold vast treasures, and that secret doorways to stars and other dimensions and realms provide power and secrets and death. They sometimes call it magic, and who are we to say that they're wrong? More often, however, when they find leftovers of the old worlds, the devices, the vast machine complexes, the altered landscapes, the changes wrought upon living creatures by ancient energies, the invisible nanospirits hovering in the air in clouds called the Iron Wind, the information transmitted into the so-called Datasphere, and the remnants of visitors from other dimensions and alien planets. They call these things the Numenera. In the Ninth World, the Numenera is both a boon and a bane. It makes life very different from any other time on Earth. This is the first real introduction given to the setting of Numenera in the core book. Given that this is by the author of Planescape, perhaps my favorite Dungeons & Dragons setting of all time, it is not particularly surprising that it is downright weird, and I mean that in the most favorable way possible. It's about incomprehensibility, about simply being unable to understand the past because it is too alien. This is firmly rooted in the ideas of Jack Vance, who wrote The Dying Earth, Gene Wolfe, who wrote The Book of the New Sun, and even Robert Howard, the man behind Conan and many others, in some ways. The idea of an Earth so far in the future that it is simultaneously incomprehensible to us, and yet also hauntingly familiar, is a less oft-explored trope than the one about reimaginings of history already bygone, and it's welcome to see it in use in such a high-profile project. Okay, so why is the setting so important to the game system? At its core, Numenera is a game about exploration. XP, used for character advancement, is given for finding and exploring things. It's also given when the GM uses the setting for what is called an intrusion, 
basically the GM adds a complication, which, given the nature of the setting, could be just about anything. If the player accepts this intrusion and deals with it, they gain XP. This, by the way, ends up being much more interesting and much less annoying than it sounds at first glance. The name of the underlying engine, Cypher, is the name of a central mechanic in the game. Characters can carry things called ciphers, which are strange and alien, single-use artifacts designed as quick throwaway advantages. They could look like anything. And they're sort of like scrolls or magic wands, but they only work once, and then they're spent. Okay, so, the backdrop used in Numenera is weird and bizarre and alien and super cool in many ways. It allows the GM to make just about anything happen by waving it off as, it's the Numenera, which is very handy for magical worldbuilding. Honestly, playing it felt to me a bit like experiencing a Studio Ghibli film. It has a very whimsical feeling, a place where anything can happen if you imagine it. Even more so than the standard fantasy we're also used to. So let's take a look now at the core resolution mechanic. It's used for both combat and regular skills checks. It's all based around a single d20 roll, but how it works is probably not quite what you expect. Took me by surprise anyway. All of the rolls in Numenera are done by the players. The GM rolls no dice. This is a relatively modern convention, and one I've become fond of, as a GM who cannot rely on his rolls to be anything but disastrous. This means that the players roll to accomplish things, like for example grab on and hang on by one arm as a small, anti-gravity robot automaton flies into the air at breakneck speed, and when they are threatened by something, they roll some kind of check to avoid that circumstance. Whether it's an incoming weapon or a hazard, a player describes what their character does to avoid it, and then rolls a check based on what the GM provides. There is a difficulty level assigned to each task by the GM at the time of the roll. The difficulty level ranges from 1, trivial, to 10, impossible. Each level of difficulty is worth 3 on the d20, and you need to beat that number in order to succeed. So if the GM assigns a difficulty of 4 to the check, you need to roll a 12 or better. Not too complicated, right? Pretty easy math, just multiples of 3. Various things that the player has can shift the difficulty in their favor, including skills and effort, which we'll touch more on later. If a skill applies, they can reduce the difficulty by one step. If someone is helping them, they can reduce it by another step, and so on. There are limits that apply, as with everything. But in essence, you calculate the final difficulty level after all factors, multiply that by 3 to get the target number, and then try to beat it on a d20. After just two or three of these challenge rolls, I found myself getting the hang of it very quickly. Using the Roll20 character sheet also helped, since it actually prompts you through many of the applicable adjustments. But I think it would be pretty easy using regular pen and paper as well. GM says difficulty 5. Well, I've got a skill for this, and my buddy is helping, so that makes it a 3. Roll to beat a 9? No problem. This ended up flowing fairly well, both in combat and out of it. There was one point where we got bogged down pretty bad. There was a relatively tough critter in the second session, and we were down to two players. Neither one of us could manage to roll over a six or so, and it ended up dragging out into a roll-to-hit-miss scenario for what felt like a very long time, because while attack rolls weren't going great, we were defending okay, meaning that we had a large number of rolls where essentially nothing happened. 
I think this was partly the factor of only having two PCs in the mix, and also just by a bad run on the dice that could happen in any game. However, the pass-fail nature of the rolls in this system do unfortunately lend themselves to a back-and-forth, I-miss, you-miss type of gameplay. In general, due to the speed of things, no complicated action systems, just do one thing per turn, you end up getting a lot more of it in a shorter time overall. And in general, faux health seems to be set low enough that it's usually a one or two hit type thing, and they go down. Which is good, I like combat that hits hard and fast. Also, this is by no means a problem specific to Numenera. It's an issue with any system in which the resolution is pass-fail. Especially in combat, where describing the same sequence of complex imagery to hit a dude another time gets tiresome quickly. After about the third miss in a row, I found myself getting frustrated. Not that we were losing, but that nothing was happening. By contrast, when we did our combat encounter in the third session, it was really quick and dirty. Mostly because the dice were running uh, in our favor that time. We got ground down a bit, but the enemies essentially fell over in one or two hits each, and then it was done. The hits were big enough to make me genuinely fear for our lives, and the enemies were well-balanced, and it just seemed to work. That was how I had sort of expected it to go, which I think is why the first one felt so strange. In summary, the resolution mechanic is relatively simple to understand, quick to pick up, and quick to resolve. Those are all good marks in my book. The pass-fail nature, as with all games that use that type of resolution, during a string of rolls that works out just so, can lead to a feeling of total deadlock back and forth that can be more frustrating than enjoyable. Let's move on to talking about characters. As I mentioned, we played with pre-generated characters to help us get started quicker, which may or may not have been the best idea. Regardless, characters in Numenera Discovery come in three major types. There's the Glaive, which is basically your fighter, the Jack, which is a generalist rogue type, and the Nano, which are the specialists in the Numenera who can do weird things that break reality. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you your magic user. Only three classes? I hear you cry. Fear not, dear friends, for there is significantly more customization after the fact. Though the adventurer types in Numenera Discovery fall generally into one of these three categories, they have a further choice of descriptor, a single word which further qualifies the character's general demeanor, and adds skills, a drawback, and some extra equipment. And then their focus, which is, to quote the book, what makes your character unique. No two PCs in the same group should have the same focus, which is fine, because there are plenty to choose from. Every character in Numenera is described by a sentence structure, like, and again, I'm quoting the rulebook here, I am an adjective noun who verbs. Your type, glaive, jack, nano, is the noun. The descriptor is the adjective, clever, intelligent, rugged, etc. And the focus is the verb. These include cool and weird things like, again, from the book, bears a halo of fire, fuck yeah, rides the lightning, hot damn, howls at the moon, metal AF, and so on. Each of these comes with some additional cool abilities and equipment to make your character feel unique and requisitely bizarre. Okay, great, so now we have a something-someone who does something. What does that mean in practice? Well, a character has their skills and special abilities, which come from their top line that we just talked about. They also have equipment. There are weapons ranged in melee, armor of a few different sorts which soaks damage, 
regular sort of tools and items that you might need, like explorer's packs full of glow sticks and rope and such. Pretty standard adventuring stuff. Things to cause harm, things to avoid harm, things to do stuff. They can carry their ciphers, like I talked about earlier. Looking at the character sheets, it looks like nanos can carry more of these than glaives can. Basically, the idea mechanically is to make sure they get used instead of hoarded, so that's fine. Something about weird energies interacting with each other, making it dangerous to carry more than a couple. Cool, no problem. We've established that the world is weird. See what I mean about setting being critical here? So that's a fine contrivance for us. So they're also described by three resource pools called Might, Speed, and Intellect, which serve as a combination fatigue and damage system, and it's pretty cool. This leads me to the final topic, how damage and effort is intertwined in Numenera, which might just be its most unique and intriguing quality to me. These pools, right? Well, during a skill challenge, one of the things you can do to make it easier is to add effort. Much like the other things we discussed, doing this drops the difficulty level by one, thereby reducing the target number you have to beat by three. To do this costs a standard three points from one of your pools. Monty Cook clearly has a thing for the number three. If you're doing something strong-like, it's might. Fast and nimble, it's speed. For smarty things, it's intellect. Characters also have something called edge, which blunts this cost in certain ways, but let's just talk in generalities here. So to do a thing, I want to have a better chance at it. So I'm willing to spend might to lift the heavy thing or break the bad guy's head or whatever. Here's the kicker. Those pools are also your hit points. Right? Take a minute and soak that one in. So when you flunk a defense roll against an incoming blade, that damage, any not soaked by your armor anyway, gets subtracted from the same might pool you just used to attack the dude. If one of your pools hits zero, you lose a health level, meaning some not-so-great things happen. Basically, your lows are the same, but your highs aren't as high. If two of them hit zero, you be in trouble. If all three pools are zero, your character is D-E-D dead. It's pretty elegant in practice. Especially in combat, it can get pretty tense. Do you expend the effort to try and drop your opponent faster, save it for defense, or just hope to soak it in damage? There's a really cool give-and-take, push-and-pull going on with this deceptively simple mechanic, and I have to say, I really like it. So obviously, this is very much a high-level overview of the system. I only played three sessions, after all. Still, I feel like it was enough to get a good feeling for the way the game flows. I am certain there is much more to discover. I own dozens of source books, thanks to a Humble Bundle a while back. So there's a ton out there for it. There are also other settings using the same system, like The Strange, which is kind of like Planescape meets Urban Fantasy, and that sounds fun. In conclusion, I'm actually quite curious to play Cypher in another setting, now that I've experienced the core of Numenera. I wonder how it translates to other settings and works as a game engine, rather than being so spiritually entwined with the general weirdness of the Numenera itself. Looking at the other things Monty Cook Games offers, I definitely want to check out The Strange at some point. Or maybe, just maybe, dust off my old Planeswalker's Guide from AD&D 2nd Edition. Yes, I still have one. And go explore the City of Sigil, and beyond, using this rule set. It sort of feels like it was meant to be. Thanks so much for joining me today. 
Before we go, one quick thing. If you're enjoying Threat Dice, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, or tweet us at TumbleDie, or go visit us on Podchaser, just search for Threat Dice, and leave us a review there. I'll read any reviews into the announcements on the next session. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may the road ever rise to meet you. Threat Dice is a production of TumbleDie Games, LLC. Our intro music is What Lies Beyond, the interludes are Clockwork, and the outro music is Storm, all by Vinsvep. Check out his amazing work at youtube.com slash Vinsvept, V-I-N-D-S-V-E-P-T. Additional music by Andre Sitkov and Andy Ray. This episode also featured a track by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech. Check the show notes for details. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Kylan Wigan. Fear names. Names have power in identity. Others can use names as weapons. Names are a hook that can be used to track you across the plains. Remain nameless and you shall be safe. I am the nameless one. You can find Threat Dice on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.